Kulak's Cut. Kia ora, greetings, welcome back to another episode of Why Words and Ideas. Uh, I'm your host, Arsia Tekun. And uh, before we get into this episode, I wanted to throw out a, a, another, I guess, disclaimer or apology as, as things go along, realize and learn new things. And uh, I'm pretty much just recording this stuff on my phone, and I've got a little makeshift mic. And so, I don't know, as time goes on, if I'm able to uh, procure a, a a better microphone than uh, definitely will upgrade the quality uh, of this uh, for sure. But in the meantime, just working with what I got. And so just wanted to throw that out there. And also, there's also sounds around me, like there's a helicopter that just went by. I'm not far, too far from the airport. That stuff kind of comes around. Hopefully you hear some of the birds in the background. Um, but that's um, also part of what, what happens of just kind of recording where I can and when I can. And so it does pick up uh, some different sounds and uh, I'll do my best as uh, to kind of minimize the noise. I'm also doing this while my kids are in school or at night when they're asleep. And so I try to find uh, the most quiet moments to be able to, to record some of these things and share. So just kind of be aware of that. And um, I'm aware of it and I'll do my best and we'll keep trying to uh, improve. So today I wanted to talk about what does it mean to be an intellectual? And, and the reason I wanted to do this is because I never considered myself an intellectual in, until recently. And I also wanted to kind of extend out to everyone out there that just because I have degrees doesn't make me an intellectual and other folks not. Like, I don't believe in that. There's different ways of learning and there's different ways of accessing knowledge. And I believe we learn all the time everywhere. What that is obviously depends and differs, um, but just living life is um, a process of, of learning and, and experience. So I wanted to kind of tackle this and engage with it a little bit uh, more. And, you know, there was a, I had a professor when I was studying at the University of Utah, um, Frank Margona, shout out to Frank, who was the first person I can recall in my life who ever used the term intellectual when talking to me. And I was not sure I was going to keep studying and I was having a conversation with him and he called me an intellectual and I was kind of taken back because I was like I didn't consider myself an intellectual and he said that to me and it kind of made me think I was like, oh well what does he mean and he was talking about I'm, I'm a thoughtful person like I like to think about things and I wasn't just throwing stuff out there I was thinking about stuff organizing those ideas and trying to share them and so that's how I think he was referring to it as. And, and it was really important for me to hear that because here I was in university and I still didn't see myself as that. And then he made me realize and think about how even outside of university I was an intellectual before I got there. And so I wanted to start off with, I'm going to read just a few um, sections from a commencement speech from the University of Florida in 2017 by Dr. Ibram Kendi, where he gives this really powerful speech and asks the question, are you an intellectual? And I, it really resonated with me. I shared it on um, Facebook when, you know, not too long ago because I recently graduated and, and I was thinking about it. And I wanted to have an episode where I just kind of talk about this a little bit so folks feel uh, part of this where I, the way I'm trying to draw from knowledge is definitely not only from university settings, but from everywhere and anywhere that knowledge is and exists. And 
unfortunately, that's not a common practice, but this is what I try to make my practice. So here we go. This is from Ibram Kendi's commencement speech. It was uh, given on the 22nd of August in 2017 at the University of Florida. Check it out on YouTube. It's it's such a powerful speech and really important and linked to his research on the history and ideas around race and and moving towards uh, being anti-racism and dismantling um, those things and so he talks about that as well in his speech but i'm going to focus on just the the ideas around what it means to be an intellectual and um, here we go are you an intellectual quote i am asking this question because you need to know that having a doctorate does not make you an intellectual it is so embarrassing but there are doctorates who are not intellectuals just like there are mds who are not healers just like there are JDs who are not about justice. Just like there are reverends who are not about God. Isn't that a tragedy walking? A reverend who is not about God? Isn't that a tragedy walking? A JD who is not about justice? Isn't that a tragedy walking? A MD who is not a healer? Isn't that a tragedy walking? A doctorate holder who is not an intellectual. No doctorate degree is required to join the intellectual academy. This is an inclusive academy with all types of people, with all types of backgrounds. There are people with only a GED in this intellectual academy. There are incarcerated people in this intellectual academy. There are homeless people in this intellectual academy. There are poor people in this intellectual academy. When I say intellectual, I am not referring to someone who knows a wealth of information. How much you know has no bearing on how much you are an intellectual. I define, and many others define, an intellectual as someone with a tremendous desire to know. Intellectuals are open-minded. Intellectuals have a tremendous capacity to change their mind on matters, to self-reflect, to self-critique. Intellectuals are governed by only one special interest that is rarely self-serving, the special interest of finding and revealing the truth. How many of you have a tremendous desire to know? How many of your minds are wide open to new ideas? How many of you are searching for ideas that challenge how you see the world? How many of you are willing to look at the world differently with the blink of new evidence? How many of you are critiquing your own ideas as intensely as you critique the ideas of others? Intellectuals are a nomadic people, constantly changing their conceptual location, constantly in search of a better conceptual space. Are you an intellectual? Close quote. So that was shared by Dr. Ibram Kendi. Um, definitely check out that speech and, and his, his, his books and writings. They're, they're really important works for our day and, and really uh, have been quite influential for me. I really appreciated this, this commencement speech because I felt he gave words to the ideas that I have had for a while now in a way that I hadn't been able to articulate or express. And it really reminded me a lot of kind of my educational journey. And one of those was really when I was um, at the University of Utah and studying in the education, culture and society program, it became very clear to me that there is a difference between schooling and education. Schooling was this disciplining project that is very tied up with power and maintaining the status quo. Education on the other hand, was about learning, 
beyond those limits or restrictions. And ever since, I've thought about the constantly and the differences between schooling and education. And so university for me is entangled with both. Like I definitely have had some meaningful learning happen through my university education, but it's also tied up with the limits of schooling and disciplining what counts and what doesn't count. There's a big thing of only using peer-reviewed uh, journals. And there's there's a reason for that. I, I understand that it's important to get peer review, right? You need to have people thinking about similar stuff or in the same realm that are checking your work. So, so they're challenging you and improving. But what can also happen is that that can also become gatekeeping when you're coming from a very different knowledge system uh, or a different way of thinking about those same ideas or problems and are excluded from contributing to the those areas of knowledge production. And then the other side of it is that's not the only place where people are expressing and sharing their ideas. I mean, I have only recently begun to publish things and it took me, I don't even want to count how many years in university before I learned how to read in the way that I needed to and learn how to write in the way that I needed to to be able to try and publish some things. And even then, it's constantly trying to work through the many barriers and challenges to do so. Um, and I'm not saying it's not an important or useful skill. It is, but it is very limited as well, as I've mentioned in previous episodes. And so what counts as legitimate, right? And so for me, the peer review has to also come from the community. It also has to come from the public. It also has to come from the, the, the broader realms that we are in and not just the so-called experts. Like I said in the previous episode as well, I don't like that term. I don't like calling myself an expert of anything. I'm happy to call myself a nerd about the things that I am passionately learning and engaging about. But at the same time, you know, recognizing that there's so much that I don't know and the blind spots that I have and my interest in continually learning and improving my understanding of particular topics, ideas, and the world we live in. And so that's one of the things I wanted to talk about was, you know, unfortunately within this process of what's considered a space of learning, which is schools and universities, which, as I mentioned before, is definitely not the only place people are learning. And sometimes that's learning in a very narrow, narrow way. And it's, you know, one of the things that I learned in, you know, I've got loans for life and I didn't get scholarships, um, at least in my when I most needed it for the most expensive parts of my schooling. I did get a little bit of uh, of help for a couple of things uh, during my undergraduate, and, and I'm grateful for that. It was awesome. It was a very, you know, it was a little boost and help. Um, but I've applied like crazy to all kinds of things and didn't get stuff. And it's just a competitive thing, and it's really hard to get. And so I understand that. But I also have experienced that part of that was I didn't look good enough, so-called good enough on paper, right, for certain things. And that's something that continually has come up um, where for me, I'm like, I don't buy into that. But when it comes to this realm of academia or education, that's kind of how my experience has been. The person I ended up working with here at the University of Auckland uh, Dr. Kirsten Zemke, like she just gave me a chance. Like she replied to my emails and I look back at some of those now and I'm like, man, like I was way off to where I'm at now. 
Um, but I'm grateful that she was willing to give me a chance because that's unfortunately not part of the culture of universities because they're increasingly becoming more about prestige and competing and all these. They want who's going to make them look good now and already, which to me is about schooling, right? It's about disciplining and gatekeeping and keeping a particular way. And it's not to knock the, the, the great work that those kinds of people that get into that uh, do because some of them are brilliant, right? And uh, but like Ibram Kendi said, not everybody is an intellectual, even if they're in that space. And so I am more interested in looking at education from a different um, point of view. And I remember I had a chance to work with some uh, educators, some, some uh, uh, primary and secondary school teachers in, in the last job that I had before I moved to Aotearoa. And I brought up the one of the quotes that Albert Einstein said that went something along the lines of, you know, everyone is a genius, but if you measure a fish on, on their ability to climb a tree, then they're gonna grow up thinking they're not intelligent. Something along those lines. And I remember getting some pushbacks from some folks of like, oh no, no, there's some people who are just bright, and then there's others who are not. And I'm like, say what? Like that, for me, really, like it's not the way I see the world at all, because I've, on one hand, some people definitely have seen me as so-called gifted or bright or whatever. I remember in, a, in elementary school and even through high school, I was in you know, honors and different things. And so people in my community saw me that way um, at times. But then when I was actually in those spaces, I was not bright. I was struggling. And I'll talk about a little bit of my story in that regard uh, shortly. Um, but just to kind of bring out that this is one of the things that happens. And so I, I do agree with that kind of that quote uh, by Einstein. And it's kind of how I try to approach things is how can we think about education and learning by recognizing all the intellectuals, people who are hungry to know, right? Regardless of how much they, information they, they have had access to, it's about their, their willingness to learn and, and uh, their desire to and their flexibility in that learning process. And so how can we, instead of maintaining the status quo, which keeps you know people with privileged status and power or those who can uphold the status quo of, of privileged status and power are more easily gaining access to education and maintaining it. How do we shift towards looking towards the capacity that we have as human beings? and our potential to learn um, and recognizing what we have learned in our local brilliance, even though it might be learned in different ways or may not be given the credit or the prestige or the power of the so-called legitimized knowledge that often comes from institutions of power, such as a university or a school that we consider to be the place where learning happens, which certainly, as I've mentioned, is, is not uh, the case that happens all over and all the time. And so for me, like one of the things that I always think about is, you know, yes, I've learned in universities and I'm not trying to knock that like I have. And it's been very valuable to me. But I also learned before that and outside and through, di through different mediums. And m the first teachers that I ever had were my parents, right? Like my mom, she taught me how to talk. She taught me how to walk. She taught me how to do, how to live, right? The that stuff is hard. Like I've got kids now and, oh, I mean, I've, I've wanted to retire from changing diapers for ages. And finally, we're getting there with our youngest. And I'm, this is, it's hard stuff to do. And 
mad props to all the moms and dads and, and parents and guardians out there who who engage in that. I mean, learning how to live. This is what could be more important. You know, like that is the basic fundamental things. And just by saying basic or fundamental doesn't mean that it's not uh, extremely complex and valuable. It absolutely is. And that's been a, a really important journey for me to recognize that. And so my parents are my first teachers and got mad love for them for that. And it, But in addition to you know, my mother teaching me how to live life, she was also teaching me how to relate in um, the ways that she had understood how to. She's a very mindful person of social relations, and I wasn't always that way because I grew up in a different environment, in a different country that's uh, <laughs> much less communal. Um, and so it, it was, I wasn't to the same level as her, and it took till later on to kind of unlearn some things and relearn some stuff that I was able to more appreciate how mindful she was of different people and and not just people but um, animals and, and different relationships um, and so she taught me those things as well even though I wasn't able to recognize all of that until later on and then my dad he's a mad storyteller ultimate storyteller for me in my mind and, and I've learned some of that and I consider myself the next generation of storytellers in, in my uh Hawinak and my father, my family, and um, that comes from my dad. Like he would tell me the stories of old uh, Maya stories and part of our cosmology and legends, and then he would also just tell me stories of his life, and he would reframe his life in ways that were uh, able to teach me values and skills and connect it to even our cosmologies and older stories and so they taught me those things and and they've taught me a lot of valuable lessons um through that and so for me you know i love how dr kendi talked about who is an intellectual because my parents are definitely intellectuals and they were the first people who taught me and not just them but I have aunties and uncles and other relations and mentors who may not have degrees and be recognized in the same way um as they should as as powerful knowledge holders who who have taught me heaps and on that token as well the other species that we share this planet with who have also taught me many lessons there are so many different types of birds here in Aotearoa um, incredible birds ones that I could not have even imagined had I not been here and there are some in particular that um, appear at certain times of the year more than others and are louder at certain times of the day than at other times of the day. And for me, that is, uh, has been a, a powerful teacher, teacher as well as, is the birds in, in my, um, in the neighborhood we live in, in the environment that we're in and when they appear, where they appear. And I'm again, not an expert of those things, but just living in this environment and learning how to pay attention and be mindful of that stuff around me. I've been learning, um, from them also. And so, who counts as an intellectual, right? What what counts as legitimate knowledge? And we should consider all those different things. And so one of the things that I wanted to share was in my educational uh, journey within the dominant, the mainstream uh, institutions of power, of school, uh, in, in that sense, what that experience was. And I was in primary school or, or elementary school, as I say in the U.S., and... Um, there was a special program that my parents wanted me to apply for that would jump me up to high school. And I would, I didn't skip middle school or junior high, but it allowed me to take 
my middle school and junior high at the high school so I would be able to start taking so-called higher level classes. And this is why one of the reasons why some of the people in my neighborhood and community saw me as smart or or someone who's going to make it or, or, you know, make it out of the hood or, you know, those types of things I remember hearing. But when I got into there, I was not prepared at all for what I was engaging with. And this is another example, right? But just to get into that program, I remember taking the test. And just to give you an example of, of how the, the gatekeeping process works, right? And how these systems of power maintain access for some people and not for others, right? And I remember directly taking this test um, to get into the ELP program, which I think was Extended Learning Program. I can't remember what the acronym was for anymore. But it was your basic kind of math and social science and science test and reading and all whatnot. But then they had this other test. And this one was weird. I had never taken a test like this ever before in my life. I'm not sure if they're still doing this or not. Ooh, how long ago was this? This was 15 years ago, maybe? Maybe, oh, maybe, ooh, a lot more now, actually. Oh, I don't want to think about it. It's been maybe 20 years uh, now and or more. And the this test was asking me questions like, I remember the one that really hit me was, how many bookshelves are there in your house? And how many of them are filled with books and it was questions like that stuff that had to do with the kind of life that I lived and where I lived and now I look back and I can tell you what it is right but back then I had no idea I just remember it was weird there were they were asking me what my socioeconomic status was right so they were asking if I had the cultural knowledge of the higher socioeconomic class to succeed in that space because who has that kind of stuff? Like, if you're living in a house with a lot of family or different things, you know, it's going to be people with higher economic statuses or who or, or, or different, have access to different things. And that's the kind of things they would ask me. Now, my mom was aware of some of these things, right? So she would, at times, dress us up in ways that I never liked wearing, like, shirts and ties and suits and that kind of stuff. And I, and I, now I make a point of not like I wear gym clothes to give lectures because that's what I'm comfortable in. And, and frankly, that's the, 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 the clothes that, that represents my culture as somebody from the working class community of Rose Park. You know, I might dress up by putting on a, a, a button up dicky shirt, you know, and that's my, um, my, that's my formal wear. But, you know, my mom would dress us up in these other things because she knew that we were being measured on not only our appearance uh, racially, but our appearance in when it came to social economic class. And so because of my mom, I was aware that I was being judged by that in that society. And it's not just the U.S. She had learned that in Guatemala because it's such a prevalent thing there. It's so pervasive in the way people will judge you based off of what your appearance is in regards to material wealth. And so she had given me that consciousness. And I remember reading that question about how many bookshelves. And I was like, we didn't. We had two bookshelves in my house, but they weren't full of books. They were full of VHS uh, movies, <laughs> a handful that had been purchased or bought. And the rest of them were ones that my dad had recorded from the TV. So back in the day, right, you put the, 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 the VHS into the VCR and you could push record when a movie was playing on the TV. And so for my dad, this was such an amazing thing. He was like far out he's like i can have a movie for free and so he recorded the movie from the tv and then we always had the vhs of that movie so 
that's what I had in those two bookshelves. But I knew what those folks were asking. I knew what they were looking for. For me, I interpreted that question to my reality and then gave the answer that they were going to understand. So I put the highest one, which I think was like five bookshelves full of books. And I circled that one. I said, take that. And it worked because I got in. I mean, that's how I was for all those questions. Now, I physically didn't have two bookshelves with books in my house. Like I mentioned, we had movies. But for me, my parents were, how many bookshelves do they count for? Right. And the knowledge they have, the experience that they have, how much how many bookshelves does, do my aunties and my uncles count for um, or my older cousins and relatives that people who had taught me lessons, who were all around in my house and in and out and who were a, a rich source of knowledge for me. And so that's the, the thing that I think about is how uh, I was able to translate that question of what they were really asking and interpret it to my circumstance and reality and then answering accordingly and I got in. But just to give you an example, right, of, of the way these things are set up, they were keeping certain people in and certain people out. If you ever seen the movie uh, Stand and Deliver, that's the kind of stuff that was going on and it's still going on um, today even though it's transformed and shape-shifted. Um, just to, to share some final thoughts on thinking about what it means to be an intellectual um, there's this Italian uh, uh, philosopher, Antonio Gramsci, who, who had this interesting idea about the intellectual, the public intellectual. And there was different kinds. There's the, the ruling intellectual, which would be what I easily could be as somebody who has a degree from university, who publishes. I could easily become a ruling intellectual by reinforcing that status quo. right? Or there's the organic intellectual, which is based not in kind of isolated in your office thinking about stuff, but in the community, drawing from your experiences in the in the things that matter to people in everyday life. And the organic intellectual is the one that can provide an alternative, a, a radical alternative to actually changing things and expanding how we think about uh, our world and expanding our knowledge and and thinking about learning and education. Um, and so for me, one of the things that attracted me to ethnomusicology, which is one of the fields of study that I'm part of, it's within anthropology here at the University of Auckland, um, is that I can draw from music, right, and use those knowledges. And so I will oftentimes uh, draw from the philosophy, from Marley philosophy, Right. And the, the ideas that Bob Marley was expressing as political commentary and social commentary that he integrated into his lyrics about the world and things that he was thinking about and trying to share. Uh, and, and I'll do that. And then I've even done it with uh, Tupac as well. And, and again, it's not to say that these are perfect people, but neither are academics. Neither am I. Right. Like we can be contradictory at time and we're complex, but that we broaden the, the pool of, of where we look for knowledge. And I remember, you know, using Tupac, I mean, within ethnomusicology, it's been fine because it's part of the field. And that's one of the things I like about the field is it allows us to use music lyrics as a legitimate source of knowledge um, or so-called folklore as well um, and, and oral histories, which is something that anthropology is, is known for utilizing as knowledge also. Um, but to if we do that, then there's a much bigger realm of and libraries upon libraries and alternative bookshelves out there 
of tons of knowledge that's available from thinking people who are being thoughtful and mindful about their world and their experience and trying to work through it and process it. Dr. Mark Anthony Neal, uh, a really big uh, scholar in, in the U.S., referred to Tupac as a complicated folk hero, but as an organic intellectual in the way that Gramsci had um, kind of talked about organic intellectual. And for me, um, I, I loved learning about that stuff because that's what made sense to me. Like a lot of what I was listening to in high school was Bob Marley um, and Tupac and the ideas that they would share were giving me uh, consciousness about thinking about the world differently. It introduced me to, to the black liberation struggle. It introduced me to thinking about indigenous issues and, and urban strife and, um, you know, all these different things in different ways. And again, like I said, it's not that we shouldn't uh, be critical of those sources as well, but that we should include those sources in our critical engagement um, like we do with um, academic journals in the university setting, for example. And those aren't the only ones, right? So to end, that's kind of what I wanted to share was how do we, you know, uh, recognize, well, hopefully that we can recognize more that uh, we all have the capacity to be intellectuals if we're not yet already. And if we are intellectuals because we have a passion for knowledge and learning and are open and flexible in that process, then we should recognize ourselves as that as well and and look to all these different uh, sources of knowledge and, and recognize them um, and give them the respect that they deserve, uh, which may include, include being critical of them, but that we actually engage with them and take them seriously. Because if we're really serious about knowledge, then we have to be serious about the knowledge that people have across the world in everyday life. Because if it's only a handful of people, whether that's a bunch of elites or a handful of activists or a handful of uh, academics or whatever, then that's a very limited realm of of thinking about these ideas and it has to for me be relevant to uh to the people to the the popular discourse the popular conversations um the 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 popular narratives um and we should be engaging with those things and so that's one of the reasons i like looking at pop culture and pop music as well is uh, definitely a lot of room to critique there but it's a really important site because that's where a lot of knowledge is being shared um and a lot of ideas are being shared and maybe more so being reinforced. And so if we uh, apply our skills of thinking as intellectuals to all those different realms, just as much as we critique the university for being kind of exclusionary or elitist or, or gatekeeping, we can also critique the, the, the public discourse and pop culture for maybe oversimplified representations or also recognize the really complex ideas that are sometimes being shared in the popular cultural realm as well. And so for me, that's what I hope that you get out of this is, is recognize yourself as a learner, as an intellectual, and give yourself the respect uh, you deserve in that and also that of, of other folks as thinkers. And maybe we can have uh, maybe a more uh, compassionate culture uh, with each other in that instead of you know reacting to what people say, thinking about how do we understand what they're saying and recognizing that, it's coming from a source of experience. Now, we might disagree with that. And that's fine. And we might, you know, want to go a completely different route. And that's totally fine as well. But recognizing that as people who are intelligent and learn, we can speak language, we can think, we can do all these things. We learn according to our environment. We learn according to our relationships. We learn according to what we have had access to um, and, what, and also what we haven't had access to influences us as well. And so 
maybe we can have a little bit more of a shift, I hope, in, in thinking about understanding perspectives and people first and those ideas and what informs those decisions and then engaging in, in, in critical engagement with with those ideas and also within ourselves as well how and, and challenging ourselves to think about how people come to understand things in different ways. That's my message for y'all. Uh, thanks for listening again. Uh, many thanks.